0: what's up Redemption? My name is Josh Butler, one of the pastors here, and I'm going to ask a question this morning, kind of kick us off. How long can you hold your breath? My kids like to compete. This summer we've been doing a lot of swimming in the neighborhood pool because it's Phoenix and it's hot, and we're not used to that because we're from Oregon, and so we've been in the pool a lot, and they like to compete to see who can hold their breath the longest as they go under. So they'll have me kind of time them and count. And I actually timed myself uh, this summer as well and found that I'm just a little bit over an a minute, so not too shabby. But the reality is, as you quickly discover when you're underneath holding your breath, that you and I were not made to live underwater. Right? Like, yes, we can maybe go down for a few and come back up. If you maybe get some scuba gear on, you can do some deep sea exploring and diving. Uh, but eventually you've got to come back up for air or you're done for. And so there is a strange Christian practice in which we need to hold our breath. And that practice is baptism, where we are actually dunked, submerged underneath the water. And this is kind of a weird image because you're not necessarily diving in under your own control. Someone else is dunking you in. And if you happen to be driving by and saw this, it might look like a crime scene. Like, dude, I hope he's going to pull him back up, you know? Uh, And so we're in kind of a passive position, getting dunked under the water and raised back up. For many of us, it can be kind of a strange image. What, is, what does that mean? Why do we do that? What's the story that makes sense of that? And uh, you could say, well, why, why should I do that? Um, and sometimes the answer we hear, many would say, well, because Jesus told us to. And that's right; it's true. Jesus did tell us to. But I don't think He was just making something up. Ah, maybe I could have him do this, or why, why don't we have someone dunk you in the water, right? Like, no, there is a story, the biblical story, that lends power and weight to what is happening in the sacrament of baptism. And I would suggest to you this morning that the Exodus. Is a baptism story. We're going to look this morning at uh, a classic, if not the classic, baptism story, this epic narrative. We're going to be in Exodus 14 this morning. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. Our ushers would love to come and bring you one. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take it, take it home with you. That is our gift to you. But We are in a series on Exodus, and as we have been journeying through Exodus where the Israelites, God's people, they are under the land of sin and slavery and death, and now God is delivering them. He has been bringing these plagues on Egypt, and today we are looking at Exodus 14. This is the climactic moment where God delivers his people through the Red Sea, where he brings them finally and completely. This is the climax of his judgment on Egypt and his deliverance on his people Uh, deliverance for his people out of the land of slavery and into the freedom of life with him. We discovered today that God draws us out to draw us in. He draws us out of the waters to draw us into life with him. And so if you could be so bold this morning as to take in a deep inhale of oxygen, of that uh, H2O, not water, oxygen. (laughs) (laughs) Take a deep inhale And hold it at the top. And as you begin to feel the anxiety and the threat and the fear kick in, the title for the message this morning is don't hold your breath, so let it go. Because God is bringing us out that we can breathe the fresh air of new life with him. If you would turn to Exodus 14, verses 1 through 4. We read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pahairoth. I think that's how it's pronounced. <laughs> Between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Well, the first thing we see here is that God doesn't take the obvious route. If you're traveling with God, you've got to burn the maps, right? God takes them in a zigzag fashion. He doesn't go in a straight line. Uh, if we were to read a little earlier... In uh, chapter 13, verse 17, uh, as they're leaving Egypt, he says, hey, Moses, take them the way by the Philistines. That'd be quicker, but don't take them that way. Go this way instead. And now as they go that way, they get to where they are going. He's like, okay, now turn back and go back this way. And you're kind of going, what's going on? It would be kind of like if I was like, hey, let's go to Los Angeles. And you're like, okay. And you, you were going to drive, and I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll navigate. And I'm in the passenger seat, and you're like, okay, which way do you want to go? I'm like, okay, well, first, let's go up to Salt Lake City. And then we'll go down to Puerto Vallarta. And then we'll kind of come back up to Flagstaff. And now let's go, you know, you're like, what are you? Uh, uh, it's, it's an obvious, quickest way to get here is here, but God's not using Google Maps, right? Like, he's got some different direction he's doing. And if you're Israel in the scenario, you're confused. You're like, dude, I thought we were going out of Egypt. Why are we now turning back? Why are we going in circles? What is going on here? Has God ever taken you the long way around? Where Jesus is like, hey, Follow me, and I'm going to bring this peace that passes understanding. And the next thing you know, it feels like your life is turning into chaos, right? Where you felt this sense of God going, hey, I'm bringing you into a place. I'm, I, I want to bring you in a place where I'm going to bless you, a place of abundance, maybe even financially whatever. And, and you step out, though, and the next month you're like, dude, I can't even pay my bills. Or a sense of, man, God's like, I'm moving you out of isolation and loneliness. I'm moving into a place of, of intimate community amongst my people and my family. time goes on, you're like, man, I think I feel lonely as ever, right? Well, if you've ever felt that way, you're not alone. This seems to be a pattern of how God often works in the Bible. It's a biblical theme where God comes to Abraham. He's like, hey, I'm going to give you uh, you're going to be father of a great nation. And then decades later and still no kids. Or Moses, hey, you're going to deliver my people. And he's out wandering in the wilderness herding sheep for years. Or David, hey, you're going to be king. Next thing you know, he's getting hunted for his life by Saul, the current king. God often gives a promise, and then the very next thing we experience is the absence of that promise. He tells you he's going to do something, like deliver you from Egypt, and the very next thing you experience is the absence of that. It. It's the chariots pounding down on your heels, about to destroy you. And... When we experience this, we can ask, why? Like, God, what are you up to? Why, why would you promise something and then give this delay? And I would suggest to you that, you know, A, this is like an opportunity for us to trust in God. That he's bringing us into this place where we want the giver more than just the gifts. But B, we also see here God gives two reasons for why he goes the long way around. He gives two reasons for why he takes Israel in a zigzag route. First, in chapter 13, verse 17, he gives one reason. He says, um, for God said that not to go by the land of the Philistines, the obvious way. He said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So the first thing we see here is that God is accommodating their fear. Because if we go this route, they're going to get too afraid and turn back. Sometimes, I think God takes us the long way around because he's saying, you're not ready for that yet. Right? Like, I'm not taking the training wheels off yet. Like, we're going to get to the point where you're taking on Philistines, but right now we've got to do baby steps first, right? Like I remember back in college, I was having these um, experiences, new Christian, having these experiences with God, kind of encounters, I felt like he was revealing some stuff to me, and I was like, and I, I remember one day clearly walking on campus, and I had this sense, it felt like God was saying, you're going to write about this stuff someday, some of the shifts that were happening for me. I was like, "All right," so I got all excited, and I went back to my dorm room, and I plucked out my computer, maybe a typewriter back then. That was a while ago, but I'm like, you know, and looking at it, and this is bunk. <laughs> this is horrible. And so, six months later, I try again, and like, oh man, this writing is horrible. And eventually, you know, after a few times, I just kind of gave up. I'm like, "All right, God, if you want to do that, you can do it downstream." Well, then it's about fifteen years later, and it just started to flow out naturally. And I realized that sometimes I think. We want the call without the formation that has to take place in the in-between time, right? Like I began to realize there was so much formation that still had to happen in those 15 years and still that God's doing, right? And sometimes in our culture, I think we have the danger of too much too soon. But the beauty of God is that God is more interested in your character than in your accomplishments, He's more interested in your formation than in your platform. And so God sometimes takes the long way around in our lives because he's got something to accomplish in us first, like he does here with Israel. Second reason God gives is that he is exposing their enemy. We see in uh, verse three here, He says, for Pharaoh will save the people of Israel. They're wandering in the land and the wilderness has shut them in. It goes on like Pharaoh's going to pursue them. And so this here, this here's what I like to call a bait, right? Like, God is going, like, Israel, you're like the cheese, and so I'm going to dangle you out here, shut in by the wilderness, and Egypt is like the mouse, and so they're going to come in and, uh, you know, they're going to think they have at you. So I'm drawing the mouse of Egypt out of its hiding, out of its flare, out of this place. But what Egypt doesn't realize is that God is the cat, right? God is exposing the enemy by bringing the enemy out into the limelight. Sometimes... God will lead us into a place that's scary. But it's so that He can bring out and bring us face to face with the enemy that we truly face. I remember another college story, I was new to following Jesus about a year in, and I started to sink into this dark depression. And I just like I was really sad and I couldn't concentrate on my classes um, for like three months. i was just like, God, what's going on? I thought if I follow you, things get better and it feels like it's getting worse. And retrospect now, I feel like God was slowing me down, preparing me for some divine surgery. Right? And so, about three months in. I had this vision in my room one night. There's this longer story, but in short, God began walking me through all these traumatic memories and events from throughout my childhood and growing up in life and the messages that those things communicated to me and began speaking his truth into the lies. That and at the end. I felt this weight come off. It's like a backpack I've been carrying filled with bricks my whole life. I didn't even know it was there, and it just suddenly sloughed off and felt this lightness and this freedom. And realizing, in retrospect, God was exposing the enemy. He was exposing the lies that the enemy had spoken over these years so that I could stare him face to face and he could set me free. I believe sometimes God's taking us the long way around because he wants to draw out the enemy so that we can see the threat we're under face to face. God's deliverance is all the greater when you see more clearly what he's delivering you from. God's surgery is all the more meaningful when he first pulls off the band-aids. We can stare the wound directly. God wants to call out the deception so that we can see the ugliness of the lies we've been living under. God wants to bring out the enemy and so we can glory all the more when we see the enemy defeated. God takes his people a long way around here because he is exposing the enemy. This speaks to baptism in that the prelude to baptism is recognizing your only hope is God. Right? Before Israel steps into the waters, they get brought to this place of desperation, realizing if we don't have God, we've got nothing. Right? God is allowing them to see how big their enemy is so they can rely on him who's bigger. And similarly for us in salvation, as we approach the waters of baptism, part of the, the, the prelude, the getting to that point for us as God's people, is recognizing without God, we don't have a shot, right? Like, like we don't need a life preserver, we need a submarine. <laughs> like we don't need a shovel so we can dig ourselves out, we need a forklift with someone else driving to dig us out. We don't need first aid, a little CPR, we need resurrection. And that's what we see here, is Israel's coming face-to-face with their predicament without God, so they can rely on him, the God, who's bigger. <clears throat> and the enemy that they face is big. Like, it, they're brought to this point, where we see how big their enemy is. We're told in verse 17 that uh, Pharaoh rallies uh, 600 chariots, but it's kind of a funny way of phrasing it. It says, um, let's, let's see it here. Pharaoh says in, uh, I'm sorry, verse 7, Pharaoh took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers all over all of them. And it's kind of an interesting way of saying it. 600 and a bunch of other ones. Like, why don't you just say he took 869 chariots, right? Like, why 600? Well, it's making a point, a few things. One, there's some echoes that number 600 has. One echo here is that we're told 600,000 men came out of Egypt. And so, like, dude, there's one chariot for every 1,000 men. And chariots were like tanks, jet fighters, AK-47s back in the day. It was like the advanced weaponry, chariots and horses, that you could just dominate with, right? And so one, it's showing how big the enemy is. Two, there's an echo here back in Genesis in the story of Noah and the flood, where we're told multiple times the number 600 shows up multiple times in that story. Noah's 600 years old. It's the first year the floods come, all this. But like I think there's a picture, an echo we're supposed to be here is like this is like a flood of chariots of the empire's power Burnt raining down upon them. And so there's this picture where Israel is trapped, the people got a trap between the natural forces of chaos on one side and the waters and the political forces of chaos on the other, and they're going to get crunched and drown in the middle. So as you're in that spot and going, man, God, we've got no hope but you, uh, the prelude to baptism, there's nothing we can do on our own. We are in a predicament where the powers of sin and slavery and death are coming down upon us, and we may live for a little while, but we can see the end coming, and it's getting closer and closer and short. What in the world are we going to do? There's nothing we can do. We're opposed without you, God. What is the strategy? And Moses stands up. In verse 13, Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent or to be still. It's interesting that phrase, this is where the origin of that phrase, be still and know that I am God comes. We often hear that phrase, be still know that I'm God. And if you're like me, you tend to think of like the Hallmark card with like the pretty lake and the forest and it's quiet and there's a bench and the sense is like you get away from the chaos and craziness of life and the city and whatever and go somewhere where you can kind of rest and detach and contemplate the beauty of God. And those are all good things. Those aren't bad things. But it's interesting to recognize originally this was a holy war verse. Like the context was like you're about to get crushed. The forces of the world and the powers of the world are bearing down upon you. You've got no hope in the world but to look up to God and be still and know that I am God. The prelude to baptism is a call to trust, to recognize we've got no hope on our own and we need God to be our salvation. We're not strong enough to fight for ourselves. When we hear that be still and know that I am God, the picture we should have is less like the monk in the monastery removed from the world. Uh, that's not bad per se. That can be a good thing, but I think the picture here, it's more like a kid with disabilities who's on the playground getting beat up by 10 bullies who are bigger and older and stronger when suddenly he hears the voice of his father step on the field. Say, step back, son, and watch me take care of these guys for you. The prelude to baptism is looking in trust to the God that we need to fight on our behalf. So let's see what happens next. When we go to um, verse... My memory is, God, I need you to. <laughs> verse 19, that's right. And actually, I want to bring this up in the slides in the NIV because there's some, some things here that the translation maybe brings out that I want us to, to, to look at So uh, that I think are helpful. So verse 19 to 22. It says, then the angel of God who had been traveling. So first, God tells Moses, stretch out your staff, raise out your hand, and watch me take care of the Egyptians. And so as he does, it says, then the angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. We see here that salvation is depicted as an act of new creation We see salvation as new creation here let me explain what i mean there is a ton of echoes going on here of genesis 1. if you you think back genesis 1 if you're familiar kind of the opening of the biblical story what happens is we're told there's darkness and water and and in hebrews tohu vavohu it's like the chaos the dark chaotic stormy trilling waters Uh, there's no life it's just darkness and water And what does God do to this wild, it's like wild and waste. It's the image of like wilderness and ocean, roaring ocean, right? What does God do to create life? Well, first three days of creation, he separates. Day one, he says, let there be light. And he separates light from darkness. Day two, he separates water from waters to create the skies, the air to breathe. Day three, he says, let the dry ground, the yavashah in Hebrew, appear. What we see here in this salvation story, this moment, is a very similar picture where, uh, as it opens here, the predicament, Israel is faced with, wa- with wil- wild and waste, right? With tohu babahu, with the chaotic, we're, we're told they're hemmed in by the wilderness on one side, and the waters, the dark, chaotic waters on the other. And how are they going to survive? Well, God is going to bring about this act of new creation. If we could pull back up the, those verses, verses 19 to 22— uh, what we see is God's first act, like day one, is he says, let there be light. He separates light from darkness. It says in the second half of that paragraph that the angel of God in the cloud, uh, throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side, Egypt, and light to the other side, Israel. So neither went near the other all night long. God's first act here is to separate light from darkness, Israel, from Egypt. Then God's second act is to divide and separate the waters. So he'll stretch out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back with the strongest wind, turned it to dry land. The waters were divided. And God's third act is to bring forth the dry ground. And the Yabashah in Hebrew, the same word. So there's a mirroring and echoing here of God bringing forth this new creation of separating light from dark, separating and parting the waters, bringing forth dry ground that his people can move out of slavery and death and towards life and light with him. What does this teach us about baptism? Part of it means that baptism is entering into becoming a new creation. Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians 517, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Baptism doesn't mean the bad stuff didn't happen to you. It just means it doesn't have the last word on your story. Baptism doesn't mean that your dad didn't walk away but it means that your heavenly father can embrace you with an even greater love that can meet the depths of those wounds. Baptism doesn't mean your spouse didn't have an affair and blow up your family, but it means there's a God who can bring order out of chaos and put your pieces back together. Baptism doesn't mean that cancer might not take your life, but it means that God is a God of resurrection who has gone to battle against the powers of sin and sickness, and death, and the grave, in Christ, and who is able to raise you into new life on the other side. Find here, God is a God who brings order out of chaos, and new creation out of destruction. Now, some of the chaos in our lives is self-inflicted, right? It's like the Led Zeppelin. No, 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 nobody's fault but mine, right? You made your bed, you got to lie in it. Sometimes it's from stuff that we've done. Sometimes also it's from stuff that's been done to us, like Egypt, to Israel. And the beauty of the cross is that Jesus went to the cross. He went to the grave. He was submerged in the waters of chaos on our behalf to take both the sin that you've done. He's been able to take both the sin done to you and the sin done through you. Like Jesus goes to take it all, to bear it all, in order to part the waters of sin and death and the grave and to make a way forward for us as his people new creation in life. God is the actor here who parts the waters. God is the primary actor. Uh, There's actually a picture I think we see here, an echo or an image of of the triune God at work. There are three main agents in this passage uh, that we see acting to liberate Israel. Uh, The first is we see what we might consider like God the Father is king, extending his uh, mighty hand. We're told multiple times that uh, God delivers his people by his outstretched arm and his mighty right hand. When God calls Moses, take your staff and stretch it forward. Moses is like an icon of God, a representative who's displaying that you can't see God, he's invisible. So when they look to Moses, they see a picture of who God is and what God is doing through Moses as his representative. God is the one who delivers his people with an outstretched arm and a mighty right hand. Second figure we see is the angel of the Lord. And first it's like the angel or the messenger of the Lord. And then pretty soon in the narrative, it's just the Lord. Like the Lord is looking down, who comes down from the glory cloud and fights the enemies on his people's behalf. Throughout church history, you've seen the angel of the Lord, this figure, as like an uh, Christ before his incarnation. So the, the father with his mighty outstretched arm, uh, the Lord who comes down uh, like Jesus and fights the enemies on his people's behalf. And then third, we see the wind, this east wind. It's the same word for spirit, the ruach, the ruach from the east, the spirit or wind of God, where if you think back, Genesis 1 again, before creation, the spirit is hovering over the waters in the chaos, and then it's through his spirit, his wind, his ruach, that God parts the waters. And here we read it's an east wind. It's coming from the direction of sunrise at this time when it's been dark through the night, and now morning is breaking as God delivers his people salvation through sunrise. Israel is baptized by the triune God. And the invitation to baptism for us is to be baptized by the triune God into the name of the triune God, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We look to him as the one who, through outstretched arm and mighty right hand, has broken the power of the curse that we unleashed and that we have been under. We look to him as the Lord Jesus who comes down and fights the battle on our behalf, conquering Satan and Satan. And death and hell, we see the spirit of God who comes to indwell us and fill us with life, hit the life of God, and guide us through the waters of chaos into the promised land, a new creation with God. Baptism means that your trust is in a God who is bigger than your enemies. Uh, there's something interesting I love here, where in verse 10 uh, it says. The Israelites looked up. So when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. So the Israelites looked up, they lifted up their eyes, and they were filled with fear because they saw the Egyptians. Now the problem is not that they looked up. The problem is that they didn't look up high enough. Keep going in the story, verse 17, and we see, uh, I'm sorry, verse 24. It says, In the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down, on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. The same enemies who you look up to in fear, the Lord looks down on in victory. The same things that we are intimidated by that seem overwhelming like they could crush us, there's no way out. Jesus is greater and he looks down, ready to crush the enemy under his feet to set us as his people free. And sometimes I think we, uh, we don't want to look up, right? Because we know uh, we, we can be in life, and we know if I were to look up and stare in the face, uh, the things that are around me, there's this fear of like, man, it would be too overwhelming. And so we can kind of numb ourselves or distract ourselves with addiction or entertainment, distraction. Uh, but step one is actually to look up, to come face to face and acknowledge the problems that we're facing, the predicament we're in. But don't stop there. Step two is to look up higher to the bigness of the God who fights on our behalf. So I want to ask this morning, like where are the waters that you're facing? Where are the things that seem overwhelming? It could be the things that are inducing that anxiety, or the fear of the bills afraid you're not going to be able to pay, or the relationships that have been broken and fractured, and it just feels like there's no hope for restoration. Step one is to look up and acknowledge those things. God wants to expose the enemy and the, the challenges and we can stare him in the face. But step two is to look higher to the God who has come to fight on our behalf. Baptism speaks to this story. And this baptism story, this is our story. Like, it's Israel's story, but now in Christ it has become our story too. The church is a community who has come through the water. That God has parted the waters for us as his people to bring us out of slavery to sin and into life and freedom with us through his son. This means that uh, the story of baptism, it's not just an individual story, it's a community story. It's a story for us as the church. I love, I was reading this week a theologian, a guy named Peter Lightheart, and he talks about, um, he puts it this way, he says the church, the sacraments manifest the nature of the church baptism is a sacrament a means of grace that god has provided and how it tells the story it manifests the nature of our collective identity as a church he puts it this way he says too often we focus narrowly on the effect of sacraments on individual recipients and as a result both the the theology and practice of the sacraments have been horribly distorted we should in addition and even primarily consider sacraments in the context of the church the question should not only be what a particular rite does to me but also what this ritual tells me about the community that celebrates it. What he's saying is that baptism is not just about you, it's about us. It's the global historic church. This is our story, like this is our song. Praising our Savior all the day long, our Savior who has parted the waters of sin and death and is guiding us as his people out and forming us as a community. That baptism is not only baptism into life with God, it is first and foremost that, but it's also baptism into life with each other. Historically, baptism has been entrance into the church. It's the sign of, God, I am dying to myself, and I'm living into life with you, and Jesus, as I'm entering into life with you, I'm becoming grafted into your body and a part of the body of your people. Historically, when you would walk into a sanctuary like the one we're in here, uh, at the front, at the entrance, would be a baptismal font with the waters. And the reason was to symbolically remind every time that we entered, that we passed by remembering the waters of our baptism that have gathered us. God has gathered us through the waters out into life together as his community, as his people. This is our story. We see baptism preach the gospel here too in uh, what has sometimes been called justification versus sanctification, right? Justification being like the event where God declares you righteous and brings you out from the powers of sin and all. But you're not perfect yet. You're not an angelic being, right? You're not. You're, you're not. A, you're not a perfect little angel. Sanctification is then this process of God refining and forming and shaping you. And so similarly, uh, as Israel comes out the baptism in the Red Sea, it's this this moment, this event, this signpost, this declaration where God is bringing His children out of the land of slavery, sin, and death. But as they enter the wilderness, there's still going to be a long process ahead of them in being transformed before they get to the promised land. And similarly. For I I love the there's an old phrase you know it took God uh, one day to get Israel out of Egypt and 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel right like the Red Sea the baptism here it's the event of God getting Egypt us out of Egypt right but then sanctification it's God getting Egypt out of us justification God has delivered us through the baptismal waters God has brought us out of the chaos and destruction we were headed towards before. But now we're entering this process. where We rely on him and this manna from heaven, like communion. As we come every week, it's like relying on the daily bread that God provides in the wilderness through Christ as his people to sustain us until we get to the promised land of kingdom come. This is also why we don't get baptized over and over again. You know, there's kind of the funny scene of, you know, the classic youth, youth group camp or something, you know, where every night, who wants to uh, give their life to Jesus or commit their life to Christ, you know, and and, and every night it's like, oh, man, maybe I there's something I still haven't repented of or something. Or something or I'll do it again, you know, and going back and back to the altar over and over and over again. Well, historically, uh, like, come and give your life to Jesus, um, that's what baptism is. It's, dude, this is the moment where I'm saying, I'm coming, I'm giving my life to Jesus, and you only do it once because it's the power of God for you, in you not something that you need to keep doing. Yeah, you're gonna still make mistakes, and there's still a process of being formed in the wilderness of this world till we get to the kingdom come. But it's the event. It's celebrating the event of God declaring us righteous in his own, his means of grace to deliver us as his people. All right, well, let's go to the end here. Finale of this passage, verse uh, 23. It says, The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen, all the king's horses and all the king's men. And in the morning watch, the Lord and the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging the chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. God tells Moses here to bring it back, to bring the waters back down on Egypt. This phrase, bring it back, I mean a few different things by it here, uh, three things specifically. Uh, first thing is just kind of literal, like God's, mo- God's telling Moses, a part of the water is to bring you guys out, but now they're pursuing you to kill you and chase you down, and I'm going to bring the waters back down on them to take care of your enemies so that you guys can be free. Right? The second thing, though, is bring it back. There's a sense of payback here. Think about how Exodus opened In Exodus 1 had e- Egypt throwing the Hebrew males into the Nile River to drown and kill them. And now, in God's been patient with and warned and pursued and brought the plagues and they've gradually increased, uh, but now uh, God is drowning the Egyptian men in the river. There's a sense of payback for tat of reciprocation, what Egypt did to God's people is now coming back upon the empire itself. The third sense of bringing it back here, too, is that God is, in almost more cosmic sense, bringing Egypt back to a state of pre creation chaos. Like we talked about earlier about the before God creates the world, the darkness and the waters. God is, there's a sense of decreation, God unraveling creation around Egypt's empire about the plagues the, the first few plagues uh moses and aaron they they direct their staff at the waters cease the, the first year at the waters the next year at the land the last year at the sky the sense of water earth and sky the three layers of creation are unraveling around egypt kind of starts smaller with you know like frogs and amphibians and gnats and flies and, and gradually it builds to like the livestock on the earth and gradually it builds even more to people and it's like it's walking through the stages of genesis and the creatures that are getting and it ends, the last few plagues, darkness, death, and water. We're back to the beginning of Genesis 1. Darkness, nothing, no life, and water. Kind of chaotic form. Egypt ends with creation, this picture of creation. Around, it's like God's pulling down the house of Egypt, brick by brick, and unraveling creation around it. The reality is, <coughs> when you reject God, it will come back on you. When we reject and rebel the creator god is patient with us but we are on a trajectory towards the unraveling of our lives and in a sense this picture even if metaphorically or literally this picture of like creation unraveling around us when egypt goes down it's like dude don't hold your breath egypt no matter how long you've been practicing you ain't coming back up right? and so there's this picture that god is extremely patient with us like he was for, with egypt for 400 years that god is patient And yet there is a warning here that we would turn our lives over to God now. Because the reality is, like Egypt, we're all going to go under the waters. When we see what they represent, death, the unraveling of creation, the ending of life, we see what they represent, we're all headed there. The question is not if you'll go under the waters. The question is when. That either we go now, we allow God to... Put, put our old self to death that lived in rebellion against him and raised us into new life in Christ and in him or then in just the natural trajectory we're heading towards of our lives unraveling and our distance from God. God invites us in baptism to be made new and brought to life in him. Well, there's a another uh, verse here in verse 27 when we read it says, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the sea. That word threw it literally could also mean shook off off Egypt. It's almost like uh, a parent kind of shaking off and cleaning off the mud from their kid who'd been playing in the mud. There's a sense that God is wiping off and cleaning off Egypt off of Israel. And similarly, when we're baptized, God is shaking off sin. He's shaking off the old stuff that tore us down, and he's raising us up into new life in him. Think what baptism is, God is the actor, the agent who baptizes. Uh, I said at the beginning, we don't jump into the water. Baptism is not a push-up, right? Like, it's not like you, you know, lower yourself down into the water and push yourself back up. No, like we are passive in the process. We're dunked down and brought back up. And it's a picture of God. It's not how God brought his people through the Red Sea. It's God putting us under to unite us with Christ in his death and raising us up into new life with him. So baptism is a sign for us as a community of trusting God to raise us up. I had a buddy years ago who um, was like, he finally hit the He's exploring Jesus. He's finally like, I'm ready. I want to get baptized. He told us. He's like, I'm ready to get baptized. He's like, uh, I, I, I love Jesus. I see that he went to the cross for me. I believe in all that. I want to be united with Christ in his death. But there's just one problem. He's like, I don't believe in the resurrection. Right? And uh, we're like, okay, well, we can put you under the waters, but we can't bring you back up. You know, like... <laughs> I hope you can hold your breath. <laughs> All right. uh, but there's this picture. It's, it's a picture of trusting God to not only unite us with Christ in his death, but to raise us up into newness of life. Your son. Right, well, what does this mean uh, for us today? At least today that God is inviting us. Don't hold your breath. Right. Don't hold your breath. Like, let God raise you. And I, I mean by this a couple different things. Don't hold your breath. The first is stop trying to do life on your own. Some of us have been trying to navigate life on our own, under our own steam, and distance from God, apart from God, and it feels like things are unraveling. Maybe even we've been baptized. Maybe even we commit our life to Christ. I'm not saying you've got to go be baptized again, but I'm saying live into your baptism. Like it tells our story as a people, and it's a story of trusting God, a God who has brought you out the other side. You know, it's interesting, when Israel went through the Red Sea, they didn't need to hold their breath. You know, God parted the waters, so it's interesting. But, and yet, I can imagine, if you can imagine being Israel, walking through those waters and seeing the walls uh, of water on either side, I bet they were probably holding their breath, right? Like, dude, I hope this thing doesn't collapse down upon me. But when they came out the other side, whew, you would let it go. You're free. The land of slavery and sin and death is it's only for us, if God has brought you out through the waters of baptism, you can breathe freely. You don't need to hold your breath any longer because you've entrusted yourself to the God who fights for you. He's here for you today. For some of us, I believe Jesus might be, if you haven't been baptized yet, I believe Jesus might be inviting you to come and be baptized. We have uh, baptism coming up. As Greg mentioned earlier in our announcements, November 3rd, about a month from now, exactly a month from now, it's going to be uh, upcoming baptism i would encourage you if you've never been baptized and yet you've committed your life to jesus you want to follow him uh this is more than just kind of uh, some obscure right to do. this is the church's symbol this is entrance into life with jesus really it's more than even just a symbol it's a sacrament it's a means of grace that god has given that we enter into uh the story of god and what he's doing in our lives as his So I'd encourage you, if you've never been baptized and you want to, or even if you just want more information, in front of uh, the seat in front of you, there's a connect card, a white card. Just put down your info, your email address, um, check that you want to be baptized or interested in more information. We would love as a pastor to meet with you, uh, explain more, and just connect and get to know your story as well. So I'd highly encourage you to take advantage of that on November 3rd. And finally, for some of us, some of us maybe have forgotten what our baptism means. That God has brought us through the waters. That yes, we're still on our way to the promised land and yes, there's still challenges and all, but we can breathe freely because our God is a God who fights for us and journeys with us to carry us all the way home. As we come to the table this morning, we come to Christ's body broken and his blood shed. We come to This this reality of Jesus who allowed himself to be submerged, to go under the waters, so to speak, to go into the grave, to allow his own air to be snuffed out and suffocated. In order that he could be united with us in our death and find us in the darkest, most distant place. In order that he could lead the charge and part the waters of sin, death, and the grave, united with us to lead us as his people out the other side. So as you come this morning, come to feast on Christ, who gave himself for you. Jesus is the God who parts the waters, who enters into the depths to find us there and part them to draw us out with him. Would you join me in prayer? God, thank you that you are a God who parts the waters, that you have come for us in Christ. I thank you that baptism is our story. God, that it is an act of new creation that you have done in our lives, God, that you are at work uh, not just to fix up or improve our lives a little bit, but you are out to do a whole-on new creation work, God. Jesus, thank you that you have come, that you have delivered us from the power of sin and death and hell, God. That you have taken on the unraveling of creation. You've borne it yourself, God, in order to bring us into new life with you pray this morning for all of us, God, if there are any Jesus who are maybe desiring to be baptized or haven't yet taken uh, that step, Jesus, and yet they want to follow you. I, I pray that Holy Spirit, even now, you would bring the sacrament to life, what it represents, God, and what it, what it signifies for us, your people, and that they would be able to take that step forward in love of you and devotion, desire to follow you. And I pray for all of us, Lord, uh, that this is our story. Baptism is our story. You are a God who parts the waters. So God, I pray that we would not forget that story. Not that we need to get baptized again, but that we would live into our baptism as your people. That we would be able to inhale and breathe deeply, trusting you because you're a God who's bigger than the enemies who face us. You are a God who's proven yourself faithful, and you are a God who fights on our behalf. And We can entrust that the victory is ultimately in your hands. God. It's in your name and for your glory. Pray, Father, Son.